this I hold, hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Scripture reading for today comes from Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to, the, to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated, and I want to invite James Petropolis up now. Uh, James will be our guest preacher this morning. He is coming to us from one of our sister churches in the Northern California Presbytery, New City, Sacramento. And so thanks you, thank you, James, for uh, bringing the word this morning. Well, thank you for the introduction. Uh, thank you for having me, church. I was, uh, my wife and I were here a few months ago, and I preached from Colossians 1. I've been going through Colossians at my church in Sacramento, and uh, I obviously haven't made it very far, because now we're in Colossians 2, three months later. And so Colossians 2, 16 through 23 is where we're going to be today. Feel free to open up your word if you have it with you and turn there. Uh, I want to pray for us, and then we'll jump into our sermon. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we can have to explore your incredible, beautiful, um, and trustworthy word, Lord. We know that in it we find hope, we find salvation, we find the message of Jesus Christ preached to us for um, our souls, uh, for bringing us from death to life, Lord. So we pray that we can explore that today, that you would open up our ears, um, our minds, and soften our hearts, Lord, to hear uh, things that are not always easy to hear, especially if they go against um, what the culture may be telling us, um, what our friends and family may be telling us, Lord. We pray that we would trust in your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so it's no, it's no secret that cultures often are different, right? We, we know that. From one city to the next, culture can be vastly different. From one country to another country, uh, there can be a whole different um, set of ethics, Right? Morality can change based on the time and place that you live. And there's a word for this, or a couple words. It's called ethical relativism. It's that idea. It's that um, morality ethics change based on the time and place that an individual is. So, because culture changes from generation to generation, so will our worldly understanding of what's right versus wrong. And so, of course, this feeds into our understanding of religion, of spirituality. I mean, what is spirituality at that point? If, if, if culture changes and, and culture can often dictate what we believe about spirituality, what we believe about religion, um, then that leads to the question, I mean, what is true spirituality? Who is God, I mean, at that point? Who are we, and, and what is that relationship that exists between God and us? Many people today have answered that question, you know, how can I trust anybody at this point, right? How, can, how do I know what to believe? Many people have answered that question by saying, well, I can trust myself. I can go deep inside of my heart and try to figure out what is right for me. You know, what, what do I need to do, what is best for me, and then determine what is right and wrong, right? And this is often a product of the time and place that we live. 
But the same question can be asked at that point. If that's, if that's what you decide to do, the same question is asked. Well, how do I know that what I believe is true? How do I know that my heart holds the answers that are necessary? How do I know that my version of morality and ethics is actually right if people just 20 years before me believe something different? And we often see this, right, with even our own family. We look at our grandparents and we might say, how do they believe that? In the same way that our grandkids are going to look at us and they're going to say, how do they believe that? Right? So we see this ever-changing um, cultural understanding of ethics. So as we continue through the sermon, I want us to address some of these topics. I want us to, to look at these, these questions um, and basically remember, seek to understand that cultures do change. And therefore, worldly understandings of ex- ethics and morality changes, but Christ always will remain the same. Okay? And so to go through this sermon, I have three points that are going to uh, basically be embedded into a, a, a story, an allegory that we get from an old philosopher named Plato. If any of you enjoy philosophy or maybe majored in philosophy, then you know who this guy is. I mean, you probably know who he is anyway. Very prominent. Um, but you might specifically know his allegory, the allegory of the cave. Okay? It's very, very um, important. Uh, it's a social commentary. Um, and so it explains the world, especially in Plato's time. But you can also see how much it, it, it is part of our world today, like some of the same elements that Plato talks about thousands of years before. I mean, we see, we see today, right? It's the same kind of stuff. And so I want to go through that in order to bring out what Paul is saying in our text today. And so we're going to cover three main points as we do that. Uh, the first point will be shadows. Second point, delusions. And third point, light. Okay, shadows, delusions, and light. And so if you're unfamiliar with this story of the cave, it goes uh, something like this. Uh, there, there once was a cave, okay, and in this cave was a group of individuals. These individuals have only ever existed in this cave, and they're conveniently situated in this cave to be facing the back end of the cave, so the, the back wall of the cave, and it's almost as if it's like a screen, Okay, so they're conveniently situated. That's all they can see. That's that's where they're they don't really have a peripheral outside of that just straight forward towards the back of this cave Uh, Behind these people Unknowing to the cave dwellers are what we call puppeteers and these puppeteers uh, Sit behind them and they hold up puppets and these puppets they kind of do whatever they want with them They move them around the light from outside the cave hits the puppets and then the shadows are represented on the back wall of the cave. And so all of the cave dwellers' understandings about the world, about reality, about themselves, is based off of these shadows. That's all they know. That is the world to them. Anyway, one day, uh, someone gets interested, and they decide that I want to break free. I want to see what's outside of this cave. And so somebody runs out, and they make it out, and they realize, and at once, they are hit with this incredible, extraordinary light that blinds their eyes, and they're, they're thro- so thrown off, you know? They're just like, whoa, this is, this is incredible. This is um, miraculous, astounding. And once, once they're able to, uh, once their eyes start to focus, they see the whole world around them, and they say, wow, there's so much else out here. I've been wrong about my reality that's been in this cave. And he gets so excited that he runs back into the cave to tell all of his friends and family that, hey, there's something better outside of this. You should all come with me. But the thing is, once he gets back and tells them this, the people respond with anger, with disappointment, 
with um, just just so much uh, disrespect towards this guy because they say, I mean, how can you tell us that our reality is wrong? So much so that they, that they kill the guy for it. They kill the guy that wanted to bring them something better than what they've experienced their whole entire life. And so they, they kill the man, and then things go on as per usual in the cave. And so... This story, I think it really brings out what Paul is saying in our text today, in Colossians 2, 16 through 23. And so I want to start now with that first point, that is shadows, which are those shadows, those representations on the back wall of the cave. And one thing that we, we can notice right off the bat, those, those, those shadows, they produce a false reality, a false truth. And so these people are thinking that they're getting truth, they're thinking that they're getting reality, but instead it's not. It's dictated by the puppeteers behind them. And then also embedded in that, I want to talk about the judgment that comes along with believing that and then judging, condemning anybody else who doesn't hold to the shadows, like that man who ran outside and was excited to bring them truth. Okay, so I want to talk about that false truth, that reality, and the judgment that comes along with that. And so we can start by looking at our first two verses, verses 16 and 17. I'll, I'll read that now again. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so we, we start out this, these two verses with a command from Paul that says, do not, pass, do not let them pass judgment. And so what he's saying here is don't let the cave dwellers, or in their context, for the church of Colossae, don't let the false teachers pass judgment on you. You may remember if you've read through Colossians, uh, you probably don't remember from my sermon three months ago, but we had, uh, there was false teachers in the church of Colossae, and they were basically trying to convince the people that they needed to do other stuff in order to be saved. They needed to follow a different system of belief and they definitely are not to follow Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is not your answer. Disregard him and do this stuff instead. And the, these, so these, these false teachers that are pumping out this message, and so Paul's saying, don't let them pass judgment on you, telling what you what you need to do, which is apart from Jesus Christ. These false teachers, they were uh, what we call Hellenistic Jews, which basically just means that they uh, created their own religion that borrowed from Jewish customs as well as Greek understandings and philosophy. They took both of those ideas, smashed them together, and that was their religion. And so that's why throughout the book of Colossians we get talks of Jewish customs as well as philosophy um, and different things that the, the Greeks believed in at the time, enlightenment, things like that. And so... These Hellenistic Jews, these false teachers in the church of Colossae, they're doing two things by basically trying to judge, condemn the church of Colossae. One, they're straight out dismissing Jesus Christ as their Messiah. I mean, that's very obvious. They're saying, you need to do these customs. You need to uh, not eat these foods and drinks. You need to uh, uh, follow these festivals, this new moon, uh, this Sabbath, um, because the Messiah is not the fulfillment. So they're dismissing Jesus Christ in their message. Secondly, what they're doing is basically wanting to appear a certain way. They are trying to look a certain level of holiness, you know, a certain level of righteousness. Um, 
Because everything that they're saying, they don't actually believe. Like, they're not actually trying to glorify God, basically. They're doing everything outwardly so that they look a certain way, but inwardly, they are unchanged. And so that's what these false teachers uh, are doing with their message. Um, So they want to do, they want to have all of these things despite the message of Jesus Christ, despite the revelation of Christ Jesus. And so what they are doing is they are choosing the shadows, they are choosing these visual representations that have been produced by the culture, by the false teacher, by what other fo- whatever forces they may have had during that time. And they are choosing that rather than the real thing because that's what verse 17 says. They say these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so also right off the bat, we have to realize that the shadows are not inherently bad, which is interesting. These shadows are not inherently bad because these are the things that God told Israel to do. God told Israel to follow these laws. God told Israel not to eat these certain foods and eat these foods. Those are not inherently bad things. What's bad is the disposal of Christ Jesus, who is the fulfillment of those things. And so the shadows themselves are not bad, but they point towards something so much better. So if you dismiss what they're pointing to, then what you're doing is nothing. I mean, it's not doing anything for you, and therefore, that's what's bad. It's a, it's a mindset that's not geared towards what the shadows point to. And so that's what they're choosing instead, and they want the Church of Colossae to choose those things as well. And then, of course, they're judging, right? They're judging. They're condemning the church if they don't choose the shadows. They're saying, if you don't engage in the false realities that I believe, you're going to be condemned. That's what they're telling the church. And so Paul, this is why Paul's writing this, because he's saying, no, Jesus Christ is your answer. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the shadows, um, at least the good ones. He's the fulfillment, and so you don't have to trust them, because their answers are not going to save your soul. They are not going to fix the problem of sin in this world, particularly this, the problem of sin that's in our own hearts. Jesus Christ is necessary for that. Jesus Christ is what we need. And so, of course, this message can be applied to us today, right? We, too, as much as we may think that we don't, can dismiss Christ for the shadows. This is something that we often do. And so fo- follow my train of thought for a second. If we have, um, if we're thinking of the shadows as not inherently bad, and they point towards Christ Jesus, but resting in the shadows is bad and, and will not save you, what is something like that today? Well, I would argue that that is good works. Right? Good works are something that we are to do as Christians, that is encouraged to do. Because of the love that Christ Jesus has given us, we are to love others. We are to love our God more. But when we rest, but those good works point towards the love of Christ. So if we rest in those good works as our salvation, it's the same kind of idea. It's trusting in those shadows because we're not trusting in the substance, which is Christ Jesus in our passage in verse Uh, 17. He is the substance, not the shadow. And so it just goes to show you that good works will never save us, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many good things we may do. And once again, I encourage you to do good things, but we can't trust in that for our salvation. And that's often the message that we hear in our society today, right? We need to do certain things. We need to, um, uh, 
engage in the idea love is love, you know, in order to be a better person, in order to save yourself, in order to achieve a certain level of enlightenment. We need to affirm this, affirm that, affirm that, because that's what the culture is telling us to do. Those are the good works that are necessary. And Paul would respond by saying that those are shadows. Those will not solve our ultimate problem, even if they have good effects. Jesus Christ is necessary, because that's the thing about the light outside of the cave. That is Jesus Christ. That's the thing about the light outside of the cave. The light will always expose the fact that a shadow is temporary and insignificant compared to the real thing. So no matter how good it is, without Christ, it may have good effects, but it will not save anyone's souls. And so we we can often engage in these good works because we think that they are necessary, because we think that they are the way to um, figure out what is best for us, figure out what's best for the world by going inside of ourselves for answers, but it will not save us. And of course, just like the false teachers, I mean, we can even be from their perspective. We can be just as judging in the same situation. We can choose to judge others for engaging in shadows, or judge others for not engaging in the shadows that we engage in, right? We can look at other people and say, oh, you don't, you don't read three times, you don't read the Bible three times a day, you must not be a Christian. Oh, you don't, you don't pray in the same way that I do, you must not be a Christian. Oh, you drink alcohol, you, you smoke cigarettes, you must not be a Christian. You know, we, we choose these shadows as what it means to be a Christian and then judge others for not doing the same thing that we believe we need to do to be Christians, and that's wrong. Because faith alone is what saves us. Faith in our Savior, in our Messiah, in Jesus Christ. He is what saves us. And through him is what the good works flow from. Okay? Because Christ is the substance. He is the revealed hope, the Redeemer, the one who can truly save. Because he is that light. He is the one who we can run to when we're fed up of being stuck inside of a cave our whole lives. You see, his shadows are good, but incomplete for us. We need him. We need that substance. We need his life, his death, his resurrection for our personal sin, for our personal sin. And that's the thing about these good works. Good works, especially in our culture, they're, they're outward. But especially looking at Colossians right before our text, it says that there's a debt that needs to be paid in each and every individual. And that's why good works can't save us. Because they will not remove that debt that you and I, all of us, have apart from Christ. It is only through faith in him that that debt that we hold through our own sin, through the sin that we've, that we've inherited, can be paid. It is only through Jesus Christ that that can be fixed by his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection. And to not think that we have a deep-rooted sin in us— to not think that we need something outside of ourselves for help is a delusion. And that's the, I mean, that's the whole story with this cave. It's a delusion for the people in the cave to think that that's reality. And so let's move on to point number two now, which is delusions. These people that are, that are in this cave, they're thinking that that is truth, that that is reality, and that through that, they know what is right and wrong. They know what morality is. They know how to live their lives. They know what to do in order to be a good person. They think that they know all that they need to know. And on top of that, they have a false assumption that they are the ones in control, and that's the sad reality. They, have, they believe that they are the ones in control, 
but in reality, they are being held captive in a cave, manipulated by the puppeteers that stand right behind them, holding up little figures on the walls to get them to believe certain things. And I, I, love, I love how well this, this story applies to our text, just because Plato, I mean, Plato, as far as we know, wasn't a Christian, did not believe in, in a Messiah. Um, but I think it really, his social commentary here really aligns with the fact that we need something greater. We need something outside of ourselves. Society, culture, is not going to solve our problems. You see, these puppeteers, they're not other people. Really deep down, really our, the understanding is that these puppeteers that stand behind us, the false teachers are included in the cave dwellers. The puppeteers is Satan himself and his spiritual forces. They are the ones who are manipulating culture to get us to believe certain things that are not true, to hold us captive and imprisoned in this cave. And so Paul, in these next couple verses, he goes on to what it's like to be victim to this. And then the pride that comes along with it. Okay, so I want to talk about what it's like um, to be victim in this cave as well as the pride that comes along with it. And so I want to look now at verses 18 and 19. Um, where it says, 18 starts out, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So Paul starts off these next two verses by having a similar command as the first one. He said, do not let them pass judgment. Now he's saying, do not let them disqualify you. Basically saying, you know, do not let them tell you that you are not good enough. Do not let them tell you that you are not saved. Do not let them tell you that you need to do a certain amount of things in order to be seen as a holy, righteous person. He's saying, do not let them disqualify you. And the, reason, the ways that they're trying to disqualify the Church of Colossae is by saying, you need to do these things. And so Paul actually gives us a, a small um, a small list of some of the things that they, that they were telling the people to do. And so it starts off with asceticism, which is basically to look really humble, but to not be humble at all. It's kind of like a false humility. He's also telling, the false teachers are telling them to worship angels. In other words, to worship any sort of spiritual, spiritual force, spirituality, apart from our true hope, which is Jesus Christ, or prophecies and visions to create new revelations that, uh, that basically try to tell us that we are saved um, by just coming up with new ideas, right? Not Jesus Christ. And Paul mentions, uh, I love this word that he uses, he says puffed up, at least in the translation that I'm reading, he says puffed up, which basically means that these false teachers have an exaggerated view of themselves, and this view is grounded on their own human ideas, their own human precepts, their own traditions, their own culture. So these false teachers are teaching things, um, and what they're teaching is obviously apart from Christ, but it has this deep-rooted pride in it, thinking that they are the ones who know what's right, that they are the ones in control, that they can tell other people how to live their lives. And so... Looking at um, 19, and it says, not holding fast to the head. So in this pride, they're basically cut, cutting Jesus Christ off 
as the head. You may be familiar with this um, analogy, illustration, whatever you want to call it, um, which is that Jesus Christ is the head, basically meaning that the, the church, those um, who are in the church body, are the body, right? We are all part of this body, and Jesus Christ is our head. And so, in other words, he is the one who leads us, the one who sustains us, the one who nourishes us, the one who knits us together and grows us, because he is the head, right? The head is at a very, probably the most important part of the body. It's the one that is in control. That is Jesus Christ. So these false teachers are cutting him off at the head, saying that I'm going to be the head. So it's basically trying to say, if they even were Christians, is that an arm or a leg can be a head. I mean, it's silly. It's just spiritually malnourished is what these false teachers are because they're living without a head, which we obviously cannot do. And so in other words, these false teachers just have, maybe in plain English, plain English, they have a complete and utter arrogance, right? With delusions of freedom and control, and they desire for others to live the same way. Church, it's, it's, we live in a culture today that tries to convince us that a lot of things are necessary to be saved. Whether that's the good works, the shadows, whether that's some sort of inner enlightenment, whether that's some supposed fresh idea, there's a whole lot of things that are necessary for us, and the culture pumps that out. I mean, we see that all the time with politicians, right? With each new politician, they say, this is the new idea that you should follow, and you're going to be, America's going to be better, right? Something's going to be better. It's the same kind of idea. We can't trust the ideas of the culture for what is right and wrong, but they're going to keep pumping it out, and today, specifically, we see more and more that we're getting this desire to Well, if I can't trust anybody else, if culture is changing, if ethical relativism does exist, well, then I have to go inside of myself for answers. I have to trust my own heart, my own understandings for for what's right and wrong, and ultimately what that will mean to be a good person, what that means to have hope and salvation. Because I'm a good person, because I can't trust anybody else, I need to trust myself, my own heart. But Jeremiah 17.9 is very clear on this. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? To trust in our own heart, to trust in the shadows that are depicted on that back of the on the on the cave wall, to 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 believe whatever culture wants us to tell us we need to believe isn't going to get us anywhere. It's not going to save us. Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that. And of course, we can even talk about our own pride that comes along with even just believing that, right? Just like these false teachers, the pride that Paul is talking about, the pride that comes along with thinking that we are the ones that are in control, that we are the ones who are free, that we can dictate what reality is, that we can follow along and be the ones in control, that we can be the head, There's a strong pride that comes along with that, and it's a delusion. It's a delusion to think that the reality, the the reality in this cave is freedom. It's a delusion to think that we can be the head, that we can be in control, that we can trust our own hearts and our our own understandings to live this life. You see, church, Christ is the head. I've tried to be the head. I don't know about you guys. I've tried to be the head many times. I've tried to be in control. I lived a lot of my life thinking that I was the one in control. I did all the things I could have done from the morality that I developed, from the ethics that I learned, 
from the, the life that I lived uh, uh, along with the friends that I had. You know, I, I did all of those things that I could come up with. Maybe you're thinking of the own th- your own things, you know, your own story, the things that you have tried to do. Um, it didn't work. <laughs> I don't know what else to say, but it just didn't work. I was so desperate. I needed Christ. I needed true direction. Because, yeah, I can, I can trust in the culture as much as I want. I can trust in our own understandings that um, our city is telling us is right, all I want. But at the end of the day, it's going to change. So how do we know what to trust if we're not trusting Jesus Christ? He is our hope because he is unchanging. So thank God he is the one in control. And through his control, through him being the head, we are learning to walk in him, right? One of the big messages in the book of Colossians is that we are to walk in him. Um, Because he is that light. He is the one who illuminates our world so that we can see what it even means to be people in a relationship with God outside of captivity that existed in this cave, right? So let's move on now to our third and final point, which is that of light. Christ is the true light. He is that light that is outside of the cave. He is that light that that man who escaped the cave embraced and was just blinded by and mesmerized by, and he was so excited that he ran back to tell everybody else, and obviously he didn't make it very far, but that is the light. That is Jesus Christ, the one that reveals what this world truly is, who reveals uh, who God is, who we are, and the relationship that exists between that, and the fact that He is the one outside of us that can save the debt that we have, that ultimate problem that we have. He is the only one that can do it. And so we no longer have to trust in the shadows. We no longer have to trust in the works of the law, the works of the world. Because they promise direction. They promise freedom and hope, but ultimately dictated by an ever-changing culture, an ever-changing generation. We need the unchanging, the undying, persistent light of Christ. That is true freedom. That is true freedom, to break free from the captivity of the cave. Paul starts off this last section, verses 20 through 23, by saying, If with Christ you died, Um, which holds a lot of meaning in that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. What does that mean that he's, he's saying, If with Christ you died, basically don't do what the false teachers are telling you to do. What is he saying there? If with Christ you died is, we can refer to that as, we have a theological term, a phrase, it's called union with Christ. It's this whole idea that uh, through faith, we have been unified to Christ. We have been connected to him. And therefore, we are able to partake in the benefits that he secured in his life. And uh, because of those benefits, uh, we are considered righteous before the Father. So when the Father looks at us, he sees what are the righteousness that we have secured through the life, death, resurrection of Christ Jesus and our faith in that. And so this union means that um, because we share in these benefits, because we partake in uh, what Christ has done for us, uh, that's possible because we have also died with him and were resurrected with him. That's part of this union. Um, and so when Christ died, we too died. Like right now, we, we died through faith. We died with Christ when he died, basically meaning that sin no longer has power over us, basically meaning that we are no longer enslaved to this world, that we are no longer held bondage to the works that are pounded into us. We have died to that, and we have been resurrected with him even now in this life. We are resurrected to a new life. We are now alive to righteousness. 
no longer have to be held captive. And so Paul says, if this is true, why would we continue living the way of the world? Why would we continue listening to the false teachers in the church, Church of Colossae? Why would you continue to do this? Because it's all, all of their ideas are grounded in human precepts, human teachings, human thought. You know we already have peace, security, hope, salvation through the true gospel, which is him, which is Christ, and what he's done for our souls. We know we already have that, so why would we do anything else? Well, Paul answers that question. Why would we do anything else? Because verse 23, they have an appearance of wisdom. That's why we would do it, because they look like wisdom. They look really good outwardly. Everything that these false teachers are telling us to do, because it aligns with our understanding of the culture, because it even looks really good, maybe it even has good effects, Paul's saying it looks like wisdom, but it's not. It's all outward. It has no bearing on your inner being, on your inner soul, on your heart that has been dead to sin. It has no bearing on that. Paul says in the the very end of our passage, why does this human wisdom uh, have no bearing for us because there is no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Our human nature is unchanged without Christ Jesus. No matter what we do, our human nature will remain unchanged. We will remain dead to sin, bound to sin, and Jesus Christ is necessary to reverse that effect. That's what Paul's telling us today. And so therefore, we see that the true problem As terrible as so many things are in this world, the true problem is that each and every one of us has a sin, a human sinful nature that exists, and that problem needs to be met. And it has been met. It has been met by Jesus Christ. He has met our ultimate problem on the cross. He lived the life that we could never live, the perfect, sinless, uh, sacrificial life, died on a cross where he uh, hung up our sins, where he nailed them to that cross, died there, taking our sins upon himself so that we could be freed. And so the minute he died on that cross, we too could die to sin by simply having faith in the work that he has done because he is God. That's why he could do it, because it was outside of ourselves. We can't do it, but he did. And of course, he was resurrected after that, proving his divinity. Also, the reality that we too were resurrected with him, being made alive to righteousness. That is our hope today, and if you have faith, that is your hope. Jesus Christ is your hope. You no longer have to trust in the ways of the world. You no longer have to look to the shadows. Jesus Christ is the only one who can do it. He is the only one that can save us from an ever-changing world. I also just want to point out, it may seem like it, Good works are not bad, can I, if I can just say that. Good works are not bad. Good works are good things that we are to do because Jesus Christ has loved us. We are to love others around us. We are to love our God because Jesus has loved us first. Good works are a good thing, but they will not save us. That is the whole understanding. They will not save us. And so in the culture, how do we, right, how do we, maybe the question is, how do we go about uh, living alongside the culture, especially maybe if we know that they want good things too? Well, we can say, uh, well, maybe the culture's telling us, um, I think you guys need to be caring for orphans and widows. Oh, well, let me, let me open up my Bible. Oh, James 1, it says that I should be caring for orphans and widows as a Christian. We can work alongside non-believers, non-Christians to do good works. 
because what they want is actually what God wants. But never making the mistake that that alone will save us. Cultures will change. Works don't always have good effects. Ethical relativism is true, but Christ will always remain the same. Therefore, he is our standard. He is our hope. He is our redeemer. And he alone is the one who can show us what's right versus wrong. And, and if we're confused, I know it's controversial today, especially if we're confused, we can turn to his word. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, what else can we trust in? If all of those things change, if we can't even trust authority figures, I mean, who can we trust? What can we trust? I want to argue today that we can look to the word to find truth, to find answers. God is good, and he provides us what we need by his illuminating light on this world. Let me end there. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we have had to explore your word from Colossians chapter 2. We pray that we would rely on you at all times, in all places, because you are the unchanging, you are the undying, Lord. You are the one who has resurrected, um, and you have given us hope, freedom, salvation by the simple simple action of believing in you and what you have done, God. We thank you so much for the work that you have done um, in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. Let's thank James for preaching with us this morning. As James mentioned, uh, God's grace, Jesus' grace, the gospel, uh, it moves us to respond. Those responses don't save us, but they are natural when we hear the good news of the gospel. And so after every sermon we do this, we take some time to respond. And one way is our tithes and offerings. And this is kind of that normal part in a worship service where we would collect tithes and offerings. We're not passing anything around, but we still want to take time in response to the grace of Jesus Christ who became poor so that we could become rich uh, to commit some of our money as a symbol of giving Jesus our entire lives. And so there's a couple ways that you can do that. Our website, newlifefremont.org, has a tab that says give, and you'll find a button there to give electronically, as well as a uh, mailing address if you wanted to mail a check. If you happen to have something on hand you wanted to drop off with us, there's also a box at the welcome table for you to leave that in. Um, And now uh, Keith's going to play a song, and we're just going to take some time to pause and reflect and think about how we ought to respond to the gospel with our lives. Greatest you.